Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, a nation remembers 9-11 20 years later. What have we learned about our American selves, about the war on terror and homeland security amid rising hate crimes? Special guest Dr. Wilmer Leon of SiriusXM's Urban View joins our panel. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. This weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the most devastating foreign attack on American soil ever, known as 9 11. Virtually every American adult today will recall the images of the commercial airliners crashing into the Twin Towers in New York City, the wreckage at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and the civilian heroes who diverted another plane to a field in Pennsylvania. All of this, of course, occurring on September 11th, 2001. An assault we now know was orchestrated and launched by the Islamic group Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, who was killed by an American-led operation in Pakistan 10 years after the fateful 9-11 attack. In the 20 years since 9-11, our American lives have dramatically changed, and as many will no doubt reflect on the day of tragedy with stories of what people witnessed and experienced on that day, with sadness over what was lost, and with pride in the many heroes of the hour. In today's edition of Black Issues Forum, we look forward by looking back to answer in retrospect what have we learned about our American selves these 20 years. Joining us today, I want to welcome political analyst Steve Rao, attorney Harold Eustish, head of the Forsyth County GOP, and a very special guest, Dr. Wilmer Leon, author, political scientist, and host of Inside the Issues with Dr. Wilmer Leon on Sirius XM's Urban View Channel 126. Gentlemen, delighted to have all three of you here. Let me open up with you, Steve. As the narrative goes, we were there to protect our interests. What were those interests and what happens to those interests now that we have left Afghanistan? Well, Deborah, it's a pleasure to be here. And I, I want to just, first of all, pray for all of the families on this very somber day in American history and thank all the soldiers of our armed forces who have defended our nation. But to answer your question, we had our interests shifted uh, as we began uh, the war in Afghanistan. The initial interest was initially to degrade al-Qaeda. So after 9-11, you saw a significant increase in al-Qaeda networks where they were attacking in London and all over the world. And President Bush and then President Obama decided to really focus in on Afghanistan to degrade the al-Qaeda network. And it worked initially. By you know, 2002, 2003, much of al-Qaeda had been diminished. And eventually, in 2011, we were able to get rid of Osama bin Laden. The challenge, however, was then the interest shifted, and it became, we're going to promote democracy and freedom in Afghanistan, and we got into what they call the never-ending wars. Remember, after that, Afghanistan, 19 years and 47 days, 19 years and 47 days, the longest war in U.S. history. And what that meant was that we were having the challenge of securing peace and democracy in a nation where we didn't have a legitimate, strong government. We didn't have um, a strong military, and we were in a situation where if we pulled out, then the Taliban could bounce back. And so our interests, um, to answer your question, shifted from achieving the degrading of the al-Qaeda network, but now the interest is what do we do in the United States? Because 
if we stay in Afghanistan, we guarantee more Americans and civilians will die. Uh, the never-ending wars, I'll end with this, $6.5 trillion spent um, on the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Pakistan, uh, hundreds of thousands dead, and, um, you know, we're, we now have to figure out what the interest is moving forward. Carol, let me ask you, Steve's talked about shifting interests. What are your thoughts, having, you know, fought in Afghanistan and also looking over the last 20 years, what are your thoughts on our reasons for staying even after Osama bin Laden was eliminated? Well, you know, first of all, I think the, the, the what happened in 9-11 shaped, you know, my life and I think so many Americans' lives, and it, it was, of course, a an incredible tragedy for our country, but um, you know, I, for me on 9/11, I I, I uh, was at Morehouse College, and and it's one of the only times uh, after uh, that we had this bell on campus, and the bell was rang. It's a call to action, and the only time since I think Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968 that the bell was rang was 2011, and that was a call to action for me to to, to sign up for the military. I hadn't thought about it before then. So that changed the course of my life and a lot of people's lives. And so, you know, spending that time in Afghanistan, um, getting to see, you know, everything right on the ground, um, I did question whether or not we should have been there um, and whether or not we should continue to be there. I think the, the right course of action was to get out of Afghanistan as far as uh, combat operations. Um, and I don't think we should have had, uh, you know, a nation-building strategy there that we did have. Um, that was a, a lot of use of our time and energy. But I do think as a strategic sort of interest that it was important for us to keep Afghanistan in some sort of way. I think we may have dropped the ball there because if you look after World War II, we, we kept bases in Germany and kept bases in Japan up until this day. After the Korean War, we've still had for decades soldiers going to Korea. We still have bases in Korea. Um, and so it's not unique after an American war for us to have, to keep troops uh, in place in, in, in a strategic way. So I think with, with the issues we have with Pakistan and Iran, China and Russia, um, it, it's unfortunate that we don't have a strategic base in that area at this point. Thank you. Dr. Leon, what are your thoughts as we consider the power position of America, then the, the power position of America over these past 20 years, what can we say about what we've learned about where that power is and where we're positioned globally? Well, I think it's important for us to to unpack this very honestly, uh, because I, what what transpired on September 11th was horrific. And to to understand the impact that it's had on the country, how it's been in, burned and ingrained into the psyche of America, and the impact that it's had on families and loved ones, is is just horrific. But there's a, a real lack of any honest analysis, particularly in mainstream media, of why this happened, and more important to me, how this horror has been used as an excuse for American militarization. Uh, a rationalization for escalating military spending and how Americans have been convinced to relinquish uh, civil rights, civil liberties, and also the dramatic escalation of the, of the uh, surveillance state. Uh, but directly to your question, in terms of American power, we have shifted from a unipolar to a multipolar world. 
And it's also important to remember that we haven't been in Afghanistan 20 years. We've been in Afghanistan 41 years. Jimmy Carter took us into Afghanistan in 1979 at the uh, ill-advised, following the, the, the bad advice of his uh, national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a staunch anti-Russian. And his Russian hatred is what really got us into Afghanistan in the first place. But we've shifted from the United States being the unitary power after the Cold War to now a multipolar world with Russia, with China, with Iran, uh, all uh, becoming incredibly powerful in their regions and particularly with China uh, uh, internationally. And the United States has not been able to shift its mindset. It has not been able to shift its rhetoric. It has not been able to shift its focus and its reality to understand we are no longer the unipolar hegemon. We have to figure out how to deal effectively in a multipolar world. And is dealing effectively including, you know, striking deals with the Taliban? Because I think that some Americans want to know, how can we have a deal with the Taliban? What's our relationship with them? Well, why can't we? Since we're the ones that brought them to power in the first place. If you go back and understand the Mujahideen and, and the, that the Taliban came out of the Mujahideen and that the, and, and the United States funded all of that, we dealt with the Taliban when they were initially in power. So it's also important to understand what else are we going to do? Afghanistan is a sovereign nation, and we lost the fight. So we now have to deal with the people that won the fight. Again, right. we can no longer traverse the world telling people what to do. It, it, it's, it's not going to work anymore. And the sooner we figure that out, the safer we're going to be, the safer the world's going to be, and we'll save a heck of a lot of money. We're talking about the safety of the world and security, Steve, you know, with sensitivity to how Americans are feeling right now after witnessing the chaotic departure from Afghanistan. Where, where do you think that our reputation stands and what we can do to um, make America secure? Are, are we more secure after that original intent to kind of de-escalate al-Qaeda and then uh, make, make kind of neutralize what's coming out of Afghanistan? Well, I think uh, in terms of our credibility uh, in the world, I mean, I think, you know, United States foreign policy uh, is now in question by many of our allies, right? Because, you know, now we have a humanitarian disaster on our hands. Uh, we've got refugees are going to be exiting not only to the United States, but all over the world. Uh, we have uh, the treat mistreatment of women and complete instability. And I think, uh, picking up on what Dr. Leon said, uh, it's, a, it's no longer just the United States of America. You have all these allies that coalition forces, like Britain, for example. They lost uh, second—the uh, most lives were lost by, by the nation of Britain. Uh, in Afghanistan, right? And they want to be a part of these decisions. So I think it has hurt our credibility as the leader of the free world. And I think what is not clear to many uh, people around the world is the Biden doctrine now states that we will promote human rights and democracy uh, as long as it uh, serves the interests of the United States. But what makes it challenging in a multipolar world is that you have uh, nuclear proliferation in Iran and North Korea, 
uh, continued threats of cyber terrorism, uh, the rise of China as an emerging superpower, and let's not forget Russia, the elephant in the room, right? right. And so right. it's no longer one, like the Cold War, it's a multipolar world with nationalism, with disruption, and all of this occurring in the midst of a global pandemic that's not going away which is affecting all of us, so it's a really tough time. And there's a lot coming at us uh, as Americans, uh, as a world power. Harold, how is this administration doing in terms of dealing with those other world powers that are kind of right on our heels, China, uh, Russia? Um, how, how are we doing with those relationships and, and making sure that we're well positioned uh, to control our future and secure our right. futures here? I think uh, the, the, this administration is doing poorly, and that's evidenced by um, what some of the world powers have said about uh, our actions uh, after Afghanistan. You know, the UK parliament held President Biden in contempt. Part of, part of what Steve just alluded to was when, you know, when we got out of Afghanistan here recently in the last several months, the president really didn't consult with foreign leaders. Um, what happened was we're, we're part of, of course, NATO, and, and under Article 5 of NATO, the only time it's been used that when you attack one NATO power, it means that in attacking all, all of those countries, that it was only used in the defense of the United States after September 11th. So all these countries went to Afghanistan because of us. And when we didn't consult them and we left abruptly and we left them sort of hanging, a lot of those countries are very, very upset. So our allies are upset. And we have kind of limited our standing. I think this administration has done a poor job of, of consulting with those allies and making sure that they can get their own troops out effectively. So, you know, I think I think we have, um, you know, had some issues there. And I think those issues also with Russia and allowing these cyber attacks and not really, really taking it to them. So I think there's a lot that's going on with this administration. I, I don't think they've really had a good handle of, of Afghanistan and then Russia and China as well. I'd love your thoughts on that, Dr. Leon. Well, I, I concur uh, because it, it's we. Whose interests were we protecting? We were protecting the interests of Raytheon. We were protecting the interests of Boeing. We were protecting the interests of Lockheed Martin. Um, this was really a money laundering scheme, is what it was. El Jefe, uh, who I call El Jefe, Dick Cheney. They that they needed a war, and they were determined to have a war. And they wanted to use Afghanistan as the, as the pretext of going into uh, Iraq. And there, we did not have to invade Afghanistan. We could have sent, if, if, if Al-Qaeda and then uh, Osama bin Laden was really the mission, we could have gone in with a much, much, much smaller footprint. And we could have been much more effective. In fact, and possibly the, come out earlier, and come out a whole lot earlier, uh, and saved a whole lot of money. Uh, in fact, if Osama bin Laden was actually the motivation, uh, or part of the motivation for continuing the fiasco, then why, when the Taliban wanted to turn Osama bin Laden over to the United States, the United States did not accept that offer. And the reason was El Jefe, Dick Cheney, and Douglas Fife and Richard Pearl and Scooter Libby, all of those folks, they had already made up their minds of what they were going to do, and there was nothing that was going to turn them around. And it's that type of 
action and that type of just thoughtless, reckless behavior that is pulling out of the JCPOA, for example, is getting our allies to understand that you follow America down the rabbit hole and it's not a very good place for you to be. There's certainly a lot of history to be learned, to be researched. Um, and thank you for those comments. Thank you for those reflections. This week, as another 200 Americans and foreigners were permitted to leave Afghanistan and communities in America, including Raleigh and Durham here in North Carolina, prepare for newly arriving Afghan refugees. Our attention and resources are redirected home and to events that evolved here over the past 20 years. While fighting for democracy abroad in the U.S., we witnessed the emergence of Black Lives Matter of Antifa, of QAnon, and rise in domestic terrorism and hate crimes as well. Steve, when we consider the absence of democracy or the level of absence of democracy in places like Afghanistan, how should we view our fight for democracy here in the United States? Well, you know, democracy, the, the journalist Fareed Zakaria has written some opinions about this called you know, the difference between liberal democracy and illiberal democracy. And so first of all, a good, thriving democracy works in a liberal democracy, which is where you have a state that is strong, a secure government that provides order, eliminates chaos, and at the same time, a society that respects the civil rights, civil liberties, freedom, expression, ability to use the Internet, express your views. And in the government's democracies have worked well where you have both, but they're not mutually exclusive. And so the challenge in, in America um, is, you know, in order to continue to preserve our democracy, uh, we have to have a strong state. But, you know, these organizations like QAnon and, uh, you know, laws from General Assembly's, you know, anti-protest laws, this is not good for America because we want to make sure that we're sending an example to the world that we are a republic and we are a liberal democracy. Um, and, you know, the challenge, Deborah, is that around the world, we're seeing so much disruption in democracy because you have these elections and then you have dictators. How right. many, how many Venezuela, Hungary, Tunisia, Haiti, the list goes on and on, right? Thank you, thank you. You're talking about respecting civil liberties here. Harold, you know, one of the things that helped the push for civil rights back in the 1960s was the appeal um, to uh, protect our reputation as indeed respecting those civil liberties. Do you think that that kind of appeal uh, is that work today or can work today as people are talking about uh, the reduction of civil liberties? I think it could work today. I think the important thing about the appeal in the civil rights movement was, yeah, Dr. King and others were saying that we are a nation founded on these principles that are good, these principles that our rights are inalienable, they come from God, that, that every man is created equal and, and every person is, is entitled to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. These are good principles. But we as a nation, when we juxtapose some of the things we're doing, we, we, we have to say, are we living up to that? And I think that was good in the 60s, and we could use that now. I think part of the problem now is that you have some folks on the left that are saying, no, 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 it's the entire thing is bad. Those founding principles are, are broken from the inception. And I think that's where we, we, we start this fight about, you know, is, is the inception of our country just and good? And I think that sort of argument that we that that King had of, of we have a good idea, 
the American ideal is great, but let's let's live up to that. I think we ought to do that now and keep preserving our democracy that way. I, I don't think that, you know, these, you know, Republican legislatures now making laws, you know, they're elected, duly elected, and now they're making laws that, that half of the country doesn't like. That is democracy. I mean, that is what a democracy is about, about electing leaders and making laws uh, justly. So um, I, I do think our democracy is strong, but I, I think that we could look at um, the ways that we use the civil rights movement in the past today. Dr. Leanna, is the democracy strong here? Are we uh, heading toward a positive direction in terms of, you know, the people winning? When we see uh, voting rights being, you know, restricted, with these new laws being passed, the right to protest being restricted and penalized by, by jailing, and then we also witness uh, what happened on January 6th. Uh, do, are, are we indeed seeing democracy in action? We're seeing democracy in action for some. Unfortunately, for uh, for Mr. George Floyd and for Breonna Taylor and for Ahmed Arbery, democracy fails with extrajudicial killings and uh, uh, civilians thinking that it's okay to shoot people down in front of their homes because they're jogging through their neighborhoods. Uh, you, you can't say that democracy is working for people of color in this country as uh, we're losing access uh, to the franchise in Texas and in Georgia. Why is it that we are still struggling to get a voting right, another voting rights bill passed in this country in uh, 2021 when uh, we were granted the right to vote? Uh, it, Why indeed? I no. mean, what's, hap what's, what's different about today, I, I always ask myself, is like... Nothing. <laughs> than, say, back in the 1960s when there weren't those rights and you, there seemed to not even be a hope. So we seem to be able to get more done as a people back in the 60s. Or am I wrong on that? Well, no, we were able to get more done legislatively, but you can't legislate people's hearts and you can't legislate people's actions. So once the Voting Rights Act was passed, once the Fair Housing Rights Act was passed, once the Equal Employment Rights Act was passed, then uh, those that were and are in opposition to those civil rights and civil liberties did everything they could do to undermine them. And they are still uh, at work today. I, I got to take, if I could take a quick step back to a point that Steve made when he mentioned dictators, we have to look at who America backs and the dictators that America uh, opposes. You mentioned Venezuela. Nicolas Maduro is beloved in Venezuela. He was democratically elected. Hugo Chavez, his predecessor, loved in Venezuela. In fact, when the United States tried to depose him, Venezuelans took up arms to defend him. You mentioned Haiti. The United States trained some of the assassins that went in and assassinated Moise. Uh, so it, look, at there was a coup in, in uh, Guinea uh, Sunday. U.S. forces, AFRICOM, trained those forces. So the, if the United States just let these countries do what these countries want to do and stop uh, this whole basis of neoliberalism, neocolonialism, what George Bush called American internationalism. I don't know what the heck that means. But... 
and, 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 and allow these countries to operate as countries. A lot of this would be that we're dealing with now, for example, in terms of Islamic terror, would we wouldn't be dealing with this if the United States hadn't gone into Iran in 1953 and overthrown the democratically elected prime minister, Mohammed Mossadegh. So we the we United would, States needs to practice what it, what it preaches. Well, we're protecting American interests would be the argument uh, for, for interfering military. in any of these countries. Military interests. In fact, if you go back to uh, 2020, the CEO of Boeing was asked, uh, who, does, who does he prefer between Trump and Biden? He said, it doesn't matter because Boeing's going to get paid anyway. And they made the defense side of Boeing made $6.6 billion in the third quarter of yeah. 2020. Again, this is a money laundering operation. This has nothing to do with democracy. It has everything to do with American hegemony. Well, you've given us a lot to think about. And as they say, follow the money. Steve Rao, Dr. Wilmer Leon, Harold Eustish, thanks to all three of you for your time today and for your perspectives. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. I want to thank today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.